Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. When it was published in 1997, the Wall Street Journal called Terrell Given's book The Viper on the Hearth one of the five best books on Mormonism. Now in the wake of a tidal wave of Mormon-inspired artistic, literary, and political activity, ranging from the Broadway hit The Book of Mormon to the HBO series Big Love to the political campaign of Mitt Romney, Gibbons has updated his book to address the continuing presence and reception of the Mormon image in contemporary culture. The Viper on the Hearth shows how 19th and 20th century American writers frequently cast the Mormon as a stock villain in such fictional genres as mysteries, westerns, and popular romances. And if today some authors like Tom Clancy use Mormon as shorthand for clean-cut and patriotic, earlier writers more often depicted the Mormons as a violent and perverse people, the Viper on the Hearth, who sought to violate the domestic sphere of the mainstream. Terrell Givens reveals how popular fiction constructed an image of the Mormon as a religious and social other. The list of authors includes both American and English writers, from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's first uh, Sherlock Holmes mystery to Zane Grey's Riders of the Purple Sage, from Robert Louis Stevenson's The Dynamiter to Jack London's Star Rover. In this new edition, uh, Terrell Givens addresses the Mormon presence in contemporary American culture, including theater. The Book of Mormon Musical, Literature, The Twilight Saga, and Politics, The Huntsman and Romney Campaigns. Terrell Givens is Professor of Literature and Religion and James A. Bostwick Chair of English at the University of Richmond and joins me by telephone from Richmond. Uh, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh, this, uh, interestingly, reading in the acknowledgments to your book, genesis of this came uh, an idea from your father? Yeah, my father was a book collector and one of his... Uh, interests was uh, anti-Mormon literature of the 19th century, and uh, he found the, 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 the stereotypes and the treatments of Mormons in Harper's Magazine and the number of popular novels to be quite intriguing, and since he knew I was in literature, he kept feeding me this information and saying, you study literature, see if you can do something with this, and uh, so I did. And he encouraged you to look for, for patterns, I guess, and meaning in this, which you've yeah, you done. Yeah, there were just there were peculiarities to the way that Mormons were represented that seemed to suggest that, that uh, something interesting was going on at a psychological level in the minds of the authors and the audiences they were appealing to. And this, uh, essentially, this, this can be used as a, as a pretty good mirror for how we see ourselves um, and how we see ourselves as Americans. Well, I think that's what the function of caricature generally is. Caricature always exaggerates qualities in order to create a foil in light of which you feel better about yourself. And so I think that the way that Mormons were represented in the 19th century tells us a great deal about what Americans mostly feared and shunned and the ways in which they wanted to construct themselves into a heroic type. You begin with a, a caricature by Artemis Ward, famous uh, writer, humorist. Uh, what do you tell us about that? Well, Artemis Ward was kind of the stand-up comic of the day, alongside Mark Twain, probably the most successful humorist of the 19th century. And he had a kind of shtick where he made fun of Mormons for their polygamy. And uh, I think that, you know, polygamy and the caricatures of Mormon polygamists was just one phase of a very long tradition of representations of Mormonism. And uh, it, it represents kind of the humorous phase when people were still trying to treat the Mormon menace as something that could be dismissed as relatively ridiculous and innocuous. But that phase didn't, uh, didn't persist for very long. Hmm. 
what uh, before we get into this very interesting idea, this is sort of the central premise of, of your book that uh, in order to I guess safely under the American ideal attack Mormonism, Mormonism had to be uh, constructed as as an uh, other exotic. You, you couldn't attack it directly in religious terms. Uh, what was what, what are the heresies? What, are, what was so threatening about Mormonism? Well, that was, I mean, you really hit there on what I think were the two main problems I was trying to address in this book. First of all, uh, the question I had was, was, why was there this reaction and paranoia vis-a-vis Mormonism out of all scale to its, its size and, and any real threat it represented? Mormonism was one of hundreds of new religions proliferating in the 19th century, and yet few, if any, encountered the same kind of, of hostility and obsessive representations and fiction. And then the second question is, um, you know, how in a society predicated on kind of Jeffersonian notions of, of religious freedom and tolerance, uh, how, how do you excise from the body politic a, a threatening religious minority? And uh, so let me see if I can kind of address both of those, those questions. It, it, you know, popular, in popular, the popular mind, polygamy is the main reason for the hostility to Mormonism. But of course, that's, that's just one very relatively brief phase of the Mormon experience. Uh, the constant that I find from the first attacks on Mormonism, even before the Book of Mormon was published in the late 1820s, all the way through the present day, have to do with what I call the collapse of sacred distance. In other words, Mormonism kind of re- represents the nature of original Christianity, but in a 19th and 20th century context. Angels, gold plates, miraculous manifestations, visions, prophesying, modern-day prophets, new cant, new scripture. So these are, these are things that are easier to accept if there are a couple of thousand years intervening between us and those supernatural kind of events. But Mormonism reintroduces them all, as, as Charles Dickens said, in the age of railways, for heaven's sake. Hmm. So we could, we could talk more in, in detail about that. But the, and the second problem is, is how, how do you, you attack or criticize a religion for aspects that are, are really common to Christianity itself, especially in its earliest form? And, and here's where you encounter the irony, it seems, of anti-Mormonism, is that it's perfectly acceptable in the 19th century to be nativist or to be racist. And so you reconstruct Mormonism into an ethnic category, and that makes it a more acceptable object of derision and condemnation. In fact, uh, apparently, uh, uh, this is a chapter heading, I believe, uh, they're not whites, they're Mormons. That's right. Um, you find this frequently. I think that, that, that quote actually comes from a, from a Jack London novel. But recurrently in 19th century popular fiction, you see that Mormons are treated as a distinct racial category. Now, of course, in the 1860s, two scientists actually make a case at a meeting of the uh, Academy of, Sci- of Sciences in New Orleans, arguing that they have discovered this new race, and that's the term they use, and they argue that the race has been, been created or constructed largely through the practice of polygamy. And what's ironic is that many of the Mormon defenders of polygamy, such as uh, 
Eliza R. Snow, agreed. They said, yes, indeed, we have created a new race because polygamy is this exalted higher spiritual principle that has created a kind of, through a, a kind of spiritual eugenics. It has fostered a new race. We'll get into this later, but uh, I just want to point out at this point, some of these ideas have persisted. Um, in, in, you know, in fact, I think uh, Mormons generally embrace the fact that they're, uh, you know, a, a people, not just well, a religion, the, but a people. Yeah, this is one of the real paradoxes of Mormonism, is that the distinctness, the peculiarity of Mormonism is felt by Mormons both as a privilege and a blessing and also as a burden and a curse. And I think the reason for that is because persecution and exclusion have biblically been construed as evidences of chosenness. And so Mormons readily embrace the fact that the, the finger of scorn in Brigham Young's phrase will always be pointed at them, that they are chosen and called to be a people apart. But at the same time, there's this, there's this uh, sense of, of, of alienation and loneliness that comes through again and again and again in Mormon literature and Mormon art. This, uh, and even today you hear it when Mormons uh, seem to be so hurt when they're told that they're not Christians. Uh, well, they want, on the one hand, to declare that the rest of the Christian world is in a state of apostasy and they're the only true church. And on the other hand, their feelings are hurt when they are told that they can't be a part of that brotherhood that they have just condemned. So I, I think there is an ambivalence there. Mm-hmm. And uh, this idea that you were talking about, uh, that Mormonism uh, you know, brings the, this idea of uh, receiving um, uh, of sacredness and, and uh, connection with God, brings it a little too much into the, to the modern era. That idea persists as well, doesn't it? You, you quote the end of your book, Jacob Weisberg, in uh, Slate Magazine, 2008, Mitt Romney running for president. And Weisberg says uh, Mitt Romney should be disqualified because he buys into the foundational whoppers, as Mr. Weisberg put it, of Mormonism. That's right. And, uh, you know, when, when, when confronted with a question of, well, what about the whoppers of Christianity, he can only weakly reply, well, they've had time to turn them into metaphors. And that certainly is true in the case of the more liberal strands of Protestantism. But by and large, of course, Christianity is still predicated on so-called whoppers, a virgin birth and resurrection from the dead, and angels and so forth. Um, so there, there, there is a, a grave inconsistency, right? Harold Bloom has pointed out that all great religions are absolutely inescapably predicated on the supernatural. And yet Mormonism is, is rather brazen in the way that it imposes all of these examples of supernaturalism in a modern setting, which just it, it, it creates a dissonance to the modern mind. What do you make? Uh, we'll get in. We're beginning into uh, you know some of the historical, very interesting depictions of Mormonism uh, in in fiction, in culture, and what it means. Uh, since we're talking about it right now, I want, I want to get your take on what changed, if anything, between 2008 and 2012. It seemed like in 2012, some of these ideas at least were not in your face as much as they were in 2008 when Mitt Romney and John Huntsman ran for president in 2012. Yeah, I don't know. There, I, I see any dramatic shift between those two election cycles. Um, some of the positive signs that we could see was that in many quarters, there was an unwillingness to countenance the kind of brazen bigotry 
that was typical of many political commentators going back, as you pointed out, to 2006. I think, for example, of the of the public statements that Reverend Jeffers notoriously made about Mormonism being a cult. And he was immediately called to account by not just some of the interviewers themselves, but by political and religious leaders around the country. So I think increasingly Americans are uncomfortable with the, the transparency with which people like Weisberg and Damon Linker are trying to, make, um, trying to validate a kind of religious test for office. And, uh, you know, uh, Americans just aren't typically as uh, intolerant religiously as they were in the 19th century. Do you think it's still there, just underground? Oh, there's no question that it's still there. I think surveys have continued to review quite clearly that um, a fairly considerable constituency, um, by self-definition, would not vote for a Mormon under any circumstances. But I don't think you're ever going to eradicate anti-Mormonism completely any more than you'll completely eradicate racism or anti-Semitism. By the way, uh, speaking of the modern times, our, our day, um, are there other um, religions, groups which go against the orthodoxy, uh, like Mormonism's, Mormonism? Uh, I wonder if you could compare and contrast uh, where maybe some of those groups are with regard to where Mormons are, at well, least let in me how go back viewed. to the 18th and 19th centuries, actually, for an, uh, a contrast that might be illuminating. The Shakers, at one time, vigorously proselytized, and uh, their founder, Mother Ann Lee, was stoned. Many of their leaders and preachers were attacked and assaulted and jailed. But by the 19th century, they had ceased to evangelize, and they, to this day, right, the, the public image of the, of the Shaker is of a quaint, kind of peaceable community that keep to themselves and they're much admired. In other words, there's a direct correlation between evangelizing and missionary success and the threat that accompanies that and the public acceptance or resistance to a religious group. And Mormons from the beginning to the present moment are probably the most successful proselytizers of any major religious denomination. And so I think that's one reason why they continue to be more of a lightning rod for criticism and opposition than, than any other Christian denomination in the contemporary world. We're talking with Terrell Givens. He is Professor of Literature and Religion and James A. Bostwick Chair of English at University of Richmond. He's author of several books, including The Viper on the Hearth, Mormons, Myths, and the Construction of Heresy, published by Oxford University Press. And that book is out in a new edition, and uh, Professor Givens updates it with uh, since 1997 when it was published with uh, the, the new, it seems like it is a tidal wave. That's how Oxford University Press described it of, uh, of this ongoing Mormon moment. And uh, we are talking about the Viper on the Hearth, uh, related issues. You're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or by email, upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll uh, dive into this, this what uh, was called, I guess, or at least Professor Givens calls it the Mormon problem, uh, a sense of a nation that newly has embraced uh, this Jeffersonian idea of pluralism. Then you have this heretical group, the Mormons, and how do you deal with them? 
And uh, Professor Givens talks about that uh, throughout his book. We'll get into uh, talking about Zane Gray and Robert Louis Stevenson and uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, some very interesting depictions of Mormons, what that means in literature. Back after break. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour. We'll explore Canada, which is a magnet for world music artists from around the globe. You can dance to a hot Latin band, enjoy the delicate beauty of love songs from India, or sway to the rhythms of calypso and reggae. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join us for World Music in Canada, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Friday nights at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Intermountain Medical Group doctors Gary Harris and Bart Avery, welcoming Dr. David Amet to the new North Cache Valley Medical Clinic on Highway 91 in Hyde Park. Appointments being accepted at 563-4800. And by Apogee Instruments of Cache Valley, creating innovative sensors for measuring climate change, sustainable food production, and renewable energy. More information is at apogeeinstruments.com. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Terrell Givens on the program today. He's professor of literature and religion at the University of Richmond, author of several books, including The Viper on the Hearth, which was described by the Wall Street Journal in 1997 when it was originally published as one of the five best books on Mormonism. It's out now in a second edition from Oxford University Press, and we're talking about the themes with uh, Terrell Givens. Uh, If today authors like Tom Clancy use Mormon as shorthand for clean-cut and patriotic, earlier writers more often depicted Mormons as a violent and perverse people, the viper on the hearth who sought to violate the domestic sphere of the mainstream. And he uh, talks about uh, writers uh, as such as uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, Zane Gray, Robert Louis Stevenson, Jack London. And he brings it up to date. We'll uh, talk about some current writers and, of course, uh, Book of Mormon, the musical, and some other things. We've been talking about the political campaigns for president of Mitt Romney and John Huntsman. Uh, so, uh, Terrell Gibbons, I wonder if we could d- d- dive in a little more in depth, this idea, and I could see, that, as you point this out, uh, this is a, a newly founded democracy, founded on idealistic idea of a Jeffersonian pluralism. And if you have a non-Orthodox uh, people like the Mormons, perhaps under that idealism, you, you can't or you shouldn't attack them directly on a religious basis. Right. Now, you know, we need to be clear that, that from the founding throughout the first century or two, there's still a lot of religious discrimination going on um, in some, right, in many states members of particular denominations can't even hold public office. But what's happening as we get to the 19th century is that increasingly it's this Jeffersonian ideal that characterizes American self-conceiving. Novelists and essayists and politicians and preachers are all talking about these Jeffersonian ideals. And so let's take the case of anti-Catholicism, right? In the 1830s, you have waves of anti-Catholicism, riots. You have burning of of Irish Catholic shantytowns. You have the burning of of convents. But when you come to the most rabid anti-Catholic of the era, who's Samuel Morse, he writes an essay in which he says, look, I have no problem with their religion. It's the political implications of what they stand for, right? They take orders from a foreign despot, and they have foreign emissaries here subverting our people and values. So he's reflective of this need that Americans feel to couch their anti-religious uh, sentiments 
in high-sounding uh, right, uh, high uh, patriotic values or ideological reasons. Now, in the case of Mormons, it's more difficult because Catholics you can just associate with the Irish, and then it becomes a kind of patriotic defense of, of American ethnicity versus right, these foreign immigrants, uh, echoes of, of what's going on today. But in the case of Mormons, you can't do that because Mormons, right, they're, they're mostly Anglo-Saxon. They speak like other Americans. They look like other Americans. So you can't really pretend that they're a distinct ethnicity but you can create one for them. And so if you look at the ways that Mormons are, for example, illustrated in 19th century magazines, in the 19th century penny, week, uh, nickel weeklies, and, and dime novels, Mormons are, are almost always depicted as foreign-looking, exotic-looking, oriental usually. They speak a funny dialect. They dress in funny clothes. Um, so they acquire a kind of ethnicity. And what I find a kind of uh, astounding coda to this practice is if you go to a contemporary version, edition of the Harvard Encyclopedia of Ethnic Groups, you find Mormons listed as an ethnic group. So it seems that the, uh, the, the practice initiated by novelists and illustrators in the early, mid-19th century uh, bore fruit that is evident today uh, in a kind of uh, ethnicity that many sociologists uh, recognize or, or, or they want to call Mormon something like an ethnicity. Yeah, that's, it's interesting that if, if that was the goal all along, it, it seems like uh, the, those writers, those thinkers have been wildly successful. That's right. And uh, so it, it also alleviated a kind of anxiety because it, it, it reminds me in many ways of, of the, the kind of rise of the brainwashing legend in the, in the 1950s, right, when American servicemen um, defect to the communist side, then Americans are told, well, they were brainwashed. And in actual fact, what's happening is if you can convince yourself that nobody would willingly affiliate with such a, a, a repugnant ideology, then you feel safer yourself. And so I think something similar was happening with Mormonism. If you can say, look, nobody would willingly affiliate themselves with these people. It's a distinct ethnicity. We can see them coming. And if they do get converts, they will do it either by mesmerism or by force, hmm. which are always the two vehicles represented in fiction as the ways in which uh, converts were, were attained. By the way, uh, I think then, I think now, most Mormons embrace this idea of separation, separate identity. Yeah, absolutely, because again, it becomes an index of the success with which they have adhered to a distinctive religious set of commitments. And so for those who are attacking Mormonism, if you can make them into a different ethnicity, then you can attack them on that basis, right, and not on a religious basis? Exactly. Certainly in the 19th century, it was much more politically and religiously acceptable to, uh, because, you know, there's, there's no kind of sensibility that finds racism repugnant in the early 19th century. And that's why it's perfectly fine to hate the Irish or to hate other immigrant groups. And if you can construct Mormonism in similar terms, then they're not American. They're not one of us. So it's much easier to excise them and sanction them. Of course, in character, in depictions in fiction, in these attacks, uh, these caricaturists, these writers they're reflecting anxieties in the broader culture as well, aren't they? 
Well, I think absolutely. I think they're mediating. I, I, I think they're mediating the kind of violence. So in some ways, they have a kind of therapeutic function. Uh, you can diffuse to some extent um, the violence that typified the 1830s in, in, in Missouri, for example, if you project that animosity into, safe fictive forms where you create this sense of otherness and make them an object of, of derision and, um, and appropriate condemnation. And the sense of identity pervades all of this, doesn't it? If you, uh, if you see something as heretical as other, you're also talking about your own identity. Well, absolutely. That's the difference between heresy and non-belief, right? It's, you know, the, 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 the Inquisition didn't burn Jews and Muslims. They burned heretics. And in many cases, those were Jews and Muslims pretending to be Christian. But the idea is that somebody who is, who is um, more susceptible of being confused with you is a greater threat to your identity. Somebody who's completely exotic and foreign and beyond the pale isn't a threat. But somebody who believes just enough to be mistaken for you, that's the heretic that you, know, that you have to cleanse the church from those kinds of threats. And there again, because Mormons looked like other Americans, because they professed to be Christian, because they were in so many ways alleging that they were, in fact, the truest representatives of Christianity, they posed the, the greatest threat to the Christian mainstream. And that's why I chose that title for the book, The, the Viper on the Hearth, which actually comes from it's the title of a series of articles published in Cosmopolitan magazine in the early 20th century to describe Mormons. So they likened Mormons to a snake that infiltrates the home and only then is revealed as the dangerous serpent that it is. So that's where the danger is. If, if it's, as you say, if it's a, uh, a heresy that's, that's out there somewhere, it's not really affecting my home, then, then I'm not as worried. That's right. And, and so I think that you know, the 21st century counterpart to that is to invoke the word cult. Because they're again a cult. Is some, you know nobody is is out there protesting or launching moral crusades against Buddhists or Hindus in our country, but against cults, yes, because cults, right? They profess to be Christians, and yet we want to we want to insist that there is something dangerously and insidiously different, even though it's subtle. And you write that this, this is an interesting metaphor, a viper on the hearth. Uh, we, we, there's a danger there you may not recognize. But on the other hand, if you do recognize it, you can do something about it. That's right. That's right. And, of course, Mormons facilitated that process by identifying themselves in these right, cohesive groups, by literally gathering together in geographically localized places. So it, it, it made it... Uh, it hastened and facilitated this work of, of, as I said, excising them from the body politics. If you just joined us, we're talking with Terrell Givens. He's author of several books, including The Viper on the Hearth, Mormons, Myths, and the Construction of Heresy. It was published in 1997. It's now been updated, a second edition, and it's from Oxford University Press. Terrell Givens with us for the hour uh, maybe we could uh, jump into some examples. You uh, you cite uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's first Sherlock Holmes mystery, right? Right. Well, his uh, his first mystery study in Scarlet it followed in a pattern that really had gone back to the 1850s, which is when the first anti-Mormon novels were produced, and most of these exploit the theme of polygamy. 
And the reason they do it, I think, is not so much because there's this motivation to, to preserve and protect the sanctity of American marriage, as much as there is an opportunity here to kind of glorify this masculinist ideal. Because in all of these novels, right, Lassiter for Zane Grey, Sherlock Holmes for Conan Doyle, um, Frank Merriwell for the Frank Merriwell Adventures, all of these figures save women from these Mormon marauders who want to, to take the women into their harems. And so the purpose of these representations seems to me to clearly be more about the way in which you construct American heroism than really trying to characterize Mormon perfidy. And that's, that's just a consistent pattern throughout. You know, Buffalo Bill, there's even a Buffalo Bill adventure where he rescues a wagon train full of women who are being sold into white slavery in Utah. So it's, it's a great American male hero riding to the rescue of the, uh, the victim of the Mormons. Hmm. Uh, what about uh, Zane Grey? Similar themes there, Riders of the Purple Sage? Absolutely. Exact same thing. Lassiter is renowned as the Mormon killer, and uh, it's because Mormons are associated with, with uh, polygamy and, uh, and white slavery. Uh, Robert Louis Stevenson. Yeah, I think you made reference earlier to that. The, the yeah, Dynamiter. He's, he touches on it in a novel called The Dynamiter, which is a novel published in 1925. And in this case, uh, once again, the heroine has escaped from a polygamous union, only to be pursued by avenging day-nights. That's the function of the day-nights in these novels. They're always chasing down women who try to escape from polygamy. Uh, it seems from the tone in which The Dynamiter is written that Robert Lewis and Stevenson isn't really taking these characters seriously, but uh, he's, he's playing along as a novelist. Mm. And uh, Jack London, Star Rover. Jack London's Star Rover is a little different. There he's, he um, has a... A, uh, an account of the Mountain Meadows Massacre. And so he's using that in a way that seems to typify to his mind what all that the Mormons stand for and represent. But it's a fairly brief, uh, kind of dreamlike account in his novel. Uh, Charles Dickens, I think, I don't think he treated Mormons directly in narrative, but I, I think he had comments. He made many comments or was editor of several journals that published comments and pieces on Mormons. Uh, he had uh, famously positive things to say about the immigrant ship that he visited in Harbor in England, in which he said that the, the contrary to what he'd been led to believe, the Mormon converts seemed to represent what he called the pick and flower of England. So highly atypical set of comments. But I think one of the more interesting things that Charles Dickens was credited with saying was this. He said, what Mormons do seems excellent. What they say is nonsense. And the reason I find that so significant is because I believe that that represents a kind of what I call a, a Mormon compromise that was made with the American public in 1893 and in some ways persists to the present day. And here's what happened in 1893. 1893 was the year of the Chicago World's Fair, right? the most magnificent highly attended, celebrated World Fair in history. And the Mormons participated in the International Choral Competition, and, uh, and they, had a, they, they, they provided a stunning performance and won the silver medal. So suddenly in 1893, right, just, just a few years after the end of polygamy or, or the process of ending polygamy, 
um, the statehood achieved in this decade. They're finally reaching a kind of accommodation with the American public. And this seemed to be a stamp of approval. They're going to be accepted and revered and celebrated as these great, great choral right, uh, singers. The, the, very, the very same venue is held the World Parliament of Religion. And just a few days after the choral event, the Mormons are singled out as the only denomination on the planet to be refused an opportunity to speak in the General Assembly of the World Parliament of Religions. B.H. Uh, Roberts had been told he could. First, they were excluded. Then he was told he could. And then 48 hours before he was to give a speech, he was banned again from the main venue. So the lesson seemed to be, as Mormons, you are welcome to sing and dance and entertain us. But don't ask us to take you seriously in terms of your beliefs. You say, interestingly, that uh, Book of Mormon, the musical, fits that that strain it, of thinking. It fits it to a T. Because, you know, <laughs> Mormons are very confused about that musical. They go, and they're not sure. I mean, they, they feel they're being ridiculed. They, they feel that they're, there's just, you know, a preposterous caricature of Mormon simple-mindedness and idiocy. And yet almost all reviewers say, yeah, but there's something endearing and sweet about the way Mormons are presented. Well, I think the seeming contradiction is really quite apparent. It's, it's just a reprise of Charles Dickens' words. What they're effectively saying is, look, when it comes to your theology, your belief structure, it's patently ridiculous and absurd. It doesn't even deserve serious consideration. But, you know, your hearts are good, and you go around the world trying to do nice things, and, and you're, you're, you're pretty sweet as a people. And, uh, and that's a compromise that America has been satisfied with since the beginning of the 19th century. And it was fine until the Romney election cycle threw that out of whack. Because suddenly it's not clear that a Mormon president is not going to bring some of those beliefs into greater prominence and relevance. Do you think then, which way do you think it's going to go? Well, I don't know. That's why, you know, I don't think the this, this story is over yet. I think that the, the, the implications, the ramifications of this last two election cycles are still playing out. I think that in many ways Mormons are still reeling from uh, a degree of, of hostility and a number of objections raised by, you know, the Damon Linker types. And, you know, the New York Times declared open season on Mormons, you know, with their opinion page. And, I, you know, Mormons thought that by the year 2008-2012, they had achieved a kind of accommodation with the uh, American public and the Christian community. And that was all thrown into question. Mm. And uh, so I, I think that there are a lot of debates that were initiated that haven't played themselves out yet. You know, you have serious uh, writers, Slate, New Republic, and other places, seriously challenging the, the long tradition of honoring the no religious test for political office clause of the Constitution. And now people are saying, well, we have to reinterpret what that really means. Should, should any religious group really be exempt from criticism or disbarring from political office? Um, I, I don't think that that, that debate has, uh, has yet been settled. Of course, I think, you know, popular conception would be, at least it's my view, that um, Mitt Romney's religion 
didn't really have a part in the outcome. Uh, those were, you know, there were other factors. I think that that's probably true. And to the extent that that is true, I, I think that the election represented uh, a considerable degree of progress. Uh, so uh, I'm, you know, as, as an observer and as a historian of Mormonism, I, 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 I find myself generally pleased with the tenor of the campaign and the, the relatively minor role that religion played in the public debate. We're talking with Terrell Givens, author of The Viper on the Hearth, published in 1997, now out in a second edition, updated from uh, Oxford University Press. And uh, we're talking about uh, the presence and the reception of the Mormon image in uh, past culture and contemporary culture and uh, how writers and uh, thinkers have grappled with this idea of uh, Mormons seen as heretical, seen as out of the mainstream, and uh, how do we deal with them especially in terms of how we see ourselves. We'll update that. We'll uh, take a look at uh, how we see ourselves as Americans today and uh, where Mormonism fits into that and to look at some contemporary, some other contemporary uh, cultural um, works. As we continue this discussion with Terrell Givens, and uh, the discussion follows this break. This is folk singer Michael Jonathan inviting you to tune in to this week's Woodsongs broadcast with True Superstar and a New Roots album with Amy Grant. It's Amy Grant for the full hour on this week's broadcast of the Woodsongs Old Time Radio. Friday night at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU's Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services. Ranked in the top 2% of graduate schools of education with degrees that include communicative disorders and deaf education. More is at cehs.usu.edu. And by Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 2, with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits and lunch sandwiches. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're spending the hour with Terrell Givens, professor of literature and religion at uh, uh, University of Richmond. He's author of several books, including a book from 1997, The Viper on the Hearth, Mormons, Myths, and the Construction of Heresy. Wall Street Journal called that book one of the five best books on Mormonism at the time. Now it's out in a new edition, updated from Oxford University Press. Terrell Givens, my guest, for another 10 minutes or so. And you're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495 or by email at upraxcess at gmail.com. Let's uh, update this. Uh, the, our view of ourselves as Americans, especially in this regard as, as a pluralistic society, is changing. Mormonism still plays a role here as, uh, I guess, a, an icon, as an idea. And I wonder if we could uh, talk a little bit about John Krakauer's book, Under the Banner of Heaven. You talk about this. Interesting, interesting ways that this reflects our new uh, anxieties and ideas about our identity. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I think it's really lamentable that Krakauer's book has had as wide an audience as it, as it has. It's really a deplorable book in most every way. It relies on very outdated sources. It's not very accurate in its history, and it comes to 
fairly absurd conclusions about the relationship between religion and violence. Um, ha having said that, however, it's probably the book through which more Americans have uh, encountered Mormonism through the printed text than almost any other any other book I can think of in the last decade or two. And uh, it's it's uh, it's not clear that Krakauer even has clear in his own mind how significant the the differences are between the Mormon mainstream as it developed with the westward migration of the Latter-day Saints under Brigham Young and the schismatic groups that are the object of his focus, uh, the fundamentalists. Are, uh, are you still there, Professor? Yes. Okay. All right. I, I thought we'd uh, lost the line there. Uh, and uh, Krakauer, I think, reflects a, a view that's maybe becoming more and more mainstream, uh, which is a skepticism about religious faith in general. Well, that's right. And he, he actually draws a kind of correlation between this paranoid schizophrenic with mental illness who hears voices and goes on a killing spree, and Abraham, the biblical prophet, who also hears a voice telling him to kill uh, his son Isaac. So if you're going to call into question the, the, uh, the ethical danger represented by any religion that relies upon revealed truth, then that's a pretty broad brush that doesn't just extend to Mormonism, but to, to Christians, Jews, and Muslims as well. And, of course, we have the New Atheists and others who are... Uh, Arguing a song along the same vein. On the other hand, you have uh, you know a lot of people in America who are at least describe themselves as religious or at least spiritual. Right, and uh, that's a distinction which uh, it comes increasingly to be used. Um, it has ever since the beginning of the 19th century. Um, it's you know I teach a number of courses with religious topics at the university, and I frequently ask my class at the beginning, "How many of you consider yourselves religious?" And usually there's no more than a hand or two that goes up. And I say, how many of you consider yourself spiritual? And every hand in the room goes up. And uh, I think it's a distinction that sometimes is just a kind of easy out from the obligations of the, 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 the communal kind of community building and community service that religion has historically involved. But that, that's certainly a recent development. So in the 19th century, as you pointed out, um, under this pluralistic society ideal, uh, those who attacked Mormonism uh, didn't want to do it head-on on a theological basis. I wonder if today uh, the theological debate is sort of being sidetracked. It's becoming a little bit irrelevant. It's, it's... I, I, think, I think that's exactly what has happened, and I think that that is what I see as the worst aspect of the playing out of the Chicago World's Fair uh, compromise. I think that every religious group in America deserves to be understood and represented and its merits debated in terms of its own profession, its, 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 its own truth claims. And in the case of Mormonism, Mormonism is kind of where the Amish are. It's, you know, I, I refer to this the horse and buggy problem of the Amish. Nobody in America knows the first thing about what the Amish believe. Nobody can take them seriously as a religious group because all they, they just equate the Amish with a, a, a quaint image of the horse and buggy carriage. Um, and similarly, Mormons continue to be uh, kind of indissolubly connected in the popular imagination with polygamy, even though that practice ended in the 19th century and we're now in the 21st. 
uh, one you know consequence of my growing frustration at watching the, the 2012 election cycle unfold was I, I, my wife and I actually wrote a book in which we decided that we would try to represent Mormonism in terms of its fundamental propositions as a faith community. And so that's why we wrote um, The God Who Weeps, which was an attempt to try to move the conversation about Mormonism more to its fundamental propositions rather than to the kind of esoterica and its kind of cultural manifestations that I think are a distraction. In today's climate, what, what do you think the prospects are? Well, I don't, I don't think they're very good. I think, you know, the fact that, that political commentators like Linker that you mentioned earlier can seriously argue in the public sphere that a religion doesn't deserve to be taken seriously if it espouses supernaturalism. Um, I think that, and the fact that nobody challenged him on that proposition uh, is an indication that to some degree religion is, in, is, is increasingly being moved to the realm of, of uh, a kind of non-theological orientation. We no longer are interested in theology, really. We don't, we don't go to church in many cases because we prefer a particular theology, but we choose them for, for a vast array of reasons. I remember driving through Massachusetts not too long ago and passing a little beautiful New England white country church, and there was a marquee out in front of it that said, come worship with us, soft pews, no hell. <laughs> so there's this kind of growing right, proclivity to, to create a kind of comfortable place to go together and fellowship um, rather than to, uh, to emphasize the, the tenets of religious belief. So do you, you think there'd be a, a growing pressure for division uh, between society and religions like Mormonism, which are communal, which emphasize the, the theology, you know, maybe hard pews and... Uh, <laughs> well, I think Definitely. so. You know, this is one of the great ironies of, of contemporary religious research has been that it's revealed. People like Rodney Stark and others who study uh, successful religious movements have discovered that completely contrary to our intuitive ideas, those religious groups that are the highest demand are the most successful in today's world. Uh, those that require the highest level of personal commitment, of sacrifice, of time and money, that have the most stringent standards and the most absolutist view of the world, those are the ones that are that are prospering. Oh, what do you think this all says then in, in, in the final analysis? We started a conversation about what this said about uh, Americans in the 19th century and this ideal of pluralism. Where do you think we stand now? Well, that's 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 the question of the hour, and I don't uh, I don't really know. I think that in the case of Mormons, Mormons sometimes remind me of people who show up for the the party wearing the wrong costume. They're always there just a little late. Uh, you know, we talked about how in the 19th century Mormons were typified as the non-American, and so they go through this campaign of Americanization, and by the turn of the century, right, they've they've adopted American political parties, they've adopted the the, the the, the typical monogamous marital system. And so by the time we get to the 1960s and 70s, as you mentioned, we have people like John le Carré who, who describe Mormons as representative of typical white bread middle class Americans. The problem is that the Waltons or Ozzie and Harriet no longer represent the typical American family. 
And so just at that moment when Mormons have suddenly entered the mainstream, the mainstream is no longer the mainstream. So I think that things are in a, in a state of flux right now. I think the fact that America is so completely divided over fundamental questions of how we define marriage, how we define the family, how we define life, I think that, uh, that we're in a state of, of radical flux right now, and Americans haven't yet sorted out exactly what their identity is or is going to be. Do you think there's an arc uh, that other religions have or groups have traveled, you know, Catholics, etc., etc., uh, where you could predict on that arc, uh, here's where Mormons are and here's where they'll be? Well, if Mormons follow the trajectory of other religious groups, then yes, there's a fairly predictable path, a kind of, of movement toward what's been called the routinization of charisma, a kind of secularization of religion where doctrine and theology becomes less supernaturalistic and less literal. We become more allegorical in our, in our understanding of Scripture. Charismatic manifestations of the Spirit die out. That's happened in all the mainstream churches. And to some extent, it's already happened in Mormonism. First-generation Mormonism was replete with healings and exorcisms and speaking in tongues. And uh, you, you don't see any of that in the contemporary church. But it seems to me that Mormonism continues to be intractable in some of its most foundational supernatural claims. For example, they continue, and I think will always continue to assert, the literal historicity of the Book of Mormon. I think they will always continue to assert the reality of prophetic revelation and visions, because and, these, are, these are absolutely foundational to their self-definition uh, and their identity, and I don't think those are, going to, those are going to go away. You end your book with uh, a quote from John Russell, uh, who were, I, don't, I can't remember when he wrote... 1853. Yeah, and he worried that if you attack, I don't know, specifically Mormonism, you also attack Christianity. Yeah, he did. And, and I thought that was a, an incredibly prescient observation, and then I was just really delighted to see that his words were kind of literally reenacted by, uh, by Stephen Colbert in 2011. Um, many people remember this very famous uh, scene from his show where he's talking about Mormonism, and he mocks Mormons for believing that Joseph Smith received gold plates from an angel on a hill. And then he adds, because everybody knows that Moses got stone tablets from a burning bush on a mountain. And that line draws tremendous laughter, but it's a laughter that should be tainted with great unease. Because effectively, what he has just said is, if you throw Joseph Smith's story out of hand because of its absurd supernaturalism, then don't you have to, by the same logic, throw out the foundations of Judeo-Christianity? And uh, that's what Russell was predicting in 1853. He said you can't attack the religious foundations of Mormonism without attacking the foundations of Christianity itself, because they're both predicated on divine communication from God to man, the creation of Scripture, the prophetic voice, supernatural manifestations, and angels and the whole enchilada. Of course, Russell's idea, that's the very fault line between Mormonism and evangelicals, some others who, who don't want to embrace Mormonism into mainstream Christianity. Well, right. And, and, and there, there's a fault line in terms of arguing that all of those things were true of early Judeo, you know, Jewish tradition, the early Christian tradition, but that they've ended, that we're no longer in that apostolic or charismatic age. And, uh, and Mormons simply assert uh, that we are. We just have a minute left. I wonder, it seems like we have an, an endless, ongoing Mormon moment. I wonder what you, what you think's next. Well, um, you know, the, uh, 
the church recently announced a change in the age for missionaries. They lowered it for men to 18 and for women to 19. And so suddenly you have a huge burgeoning from one day to the next almost of the Mormon missionary force. So I don't know, but I have the sense that that is going to impact things both in the church and outside the church. Suddenly you'll have almost an equal number of women who are developing leadership abilities and skills and having missionary responsibilities and are on on an equal footing with men. And at the same time, the missionary presence in the world outside of Utah uh, has just about doubled. And uh, I think uh, that uh, they're bound to be interesting consequences and developments that follow from those those developments. And, of course, we will be... uh We'll stay tuned, as they say. Terrell Givens is author of The Viper on the Hearth, published in 1997. It's been updated, a new edition from Oxford University Press, and it's available now. Terrell Givens is Professor of Literature and Religion and James A. Bostwick, Chair of English at the University of Richmond. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. And join us tomorrow as Sherry Quinn is in with Science Questions, and uh, they'll be talking with presenters at the Small Satellite Conference, which happened recently on the USU campus. For producer uh, Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Child and Family Support Center of Cache Valley, Inc., racing in partnership with Man vs. Mud and Kids vs. Mud on August 31st at the American West Heritage Center in Wellsville. Registration information online at manversmud.com. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan.